Welcome to Lessons Learned, supported by Airhead, with me, Laura Winter. In this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to star sportsmen and women about the moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight, the mistakes that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. Because more often than not, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. We are about to delve into my guests' professional and personal moments, both good and bad. From becoming a parent or winning Olympic gold, to getting divorced or losing a race, there are lessons to be learned in every human experience. So it's time for episode seven. First of all, thank you so much to all of you who listened to episode six with Alex Danson. I'm so glad her inspiring story, from Olympic champion to suffering that head injury, resonated with so many. Gail Edie tweeted, Although it choked me up at times, I loved listening. What an amazing, inspirational person and what a journey. And Chris Craig also said, loved the latest. More needs to be done about concussion in normal life too, as sport has woken up to the seriousness of it. If you haven't yet listened, do catch up. But for now, relax and enjoy episode seven. And I must warn you, if you are listening in public, you should prepare yourself for a few funny looks. I was laughing myself silly recording this one and indeed listening back to it as well. My guest is a natural comedian, a born entertainer, a lightning fast runner and a glass ceiling shattering broadcaster. And we had a lot of fun. Just a quick note to say, due to the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, all of these interviews have been recorded virtually rather than face-to-face, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible. Here we go. Enjoy. I am very excited to welcome the inimitable... <laughs> so always, always. Actually, I better put mine on silent as well. <laughs> there you go. That's your, that's your warning. That is, is <laughs> sod's law, isn't it? There we go. I'm on I'll silent. clip that off and, and have yeah. that as uh, the blooper reel. <laughs> okay. Yeah, whoops. Take two. I am very excited to welcome the inimitable Catherine Merry onto the podcast. Kath is a former runner and an Olympic bronze medalist over 400 metres. She first started running when she was 10 and quickly climbed the ranks, winning races and setting world best times for her age. She moved up to the 400 metre distance in mid-1999 with then coach Linford Christie and despite illness, won an Olympic medal on Magic Monday at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. Injuries curtailed her flourishing career and she retired in 2005 and now works as a fellow broadcaster including commentary on athletics and netball. Kath, a very warm welcome, how are you? I'm really good Laura, really really good. I I like intros because they, they take you back to when you could actually do something and you were quite fit. So that was uh, fabulous. Thank you very much. Lovely to, lovely oh, to see you. No, you're welcome. Well, so good to have you on. I don't know why I chose the word inimitable. Uh, I th- well, you are inimitable, but it's a, quite a hard <laughs> word to say yes. to get right. And I will admit that took two takes. <laughs> but there we go. That's, that's um, live, as mm. it were, broadcasting for mm. you, which neither of us has been doing too much of this year, have we? It's, uh, it's a, been a difficult one. Yeah, I think, um, 2020 is going to go down in years to come as that year, isn't it? When the whole world was just turned upside down and normality, in my opinion, was 
was changed forever. So yes, it's been very, very difficult year, very different year, but fingers crossed, or fingers crossed, you know, it, 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 we're getting there, we're getting back to normal and, and work-wise for us, obviously, that would be very much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And I think there's definitely a BC before COVID and AC now in life, isn't there? I don't think things will ever be the same again. And I don't mean that to sound sort of so morbid and desperately negative because it, not, it isn't necessarily a negative thing. I think as this podcast <laughs> dictates, there are lessons to be learned from 2020. Indeed, indeed. Lots of them, more than we like. Yeah. Um, but you take them, you roll with them, you adapt with them. And um, yes, I agree. The new norm. That's the, that's, the, that's the words, isn't it, around the new norm. And uh, you just got to roll with it. You just got to go with it, haven't we? Yeah, we absolutely do. Well, I'm so excited to get you on. I, we first met back in, gosh, I think it was 2015 or maybe 14, probably 15. And we were in Doha. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. At an Olympic mm-hmm. school's thing. <laughs> um, with thing. Our, our, our dear friends, great big events who I just adore working with. And um, we were both working in, I mean, this is, you know, how extravagant school sport is yeah. in, in the Middle East that they had a full blown presentation company brought over from the UK for what was essentially a sports day, I guess. It was, it, it was yeah. extraordinary, wasn't it? It was, it was kind of, wow, this, this is different because obviously, you know, our memories of school sports day, are the, are the field across the road connected to the school school um, and loads of egg and spoons um, so no yes that's when we first met it was because I was doing the athletics commentary in the Aspire Dome for the stadium wasn't I yes. and there's about four or five of us in different sports it was like a mini Olympic sports day for these Doha kids it was like okay this, this is how this is how they do it over here but we enjoyed it we had a good time right I just I remember from that trip laughing so much all of us were just in hysterics whenever we sat down with each other I think I was doing swimming I think God, I can't remember that's yeah. that one of my first um, one of my first jobs actually in the first year I kind of went freelance and started doing all this so um, I remember being apprehensive should we say at what to expect mm. but yeah it, and then it was different but it was, it was they'd assembled a really good team and I remember it vividly Laura because it was an all-female team which of course in itself was like whoa you know we're going into Doha here um, and I remember all the rules and restrictions which obviously are in place and it was it was a good team and it was a unique team and yeah it was yeah I enjoyed it I really enjoyed it. I went to Doha obviously last year um, in, uh, for our World Athletic Championships and I was walking around thinking, oh look, that's where, that's where, that's where we did the school sports day. <laughs> it's uh, just absolutely ridiculous, but brilliant. And we, um, we loved it. And from this, I've got you on the podcast. So there we go. Okay, let's get involved with it then. Your first moment choice, mistake, whatever, whatever it is that kind of taught you life lessons. Where are we starting off? Um, we're going to start off when I, early on in my athletics career. Um, this, was, this, was, this was great for me to do, Laura. Thank you for asking me because you really got me to think about things and think about things outside the box. I think it would be really obvious, and I obviously don't mind talking about it over the last 20 years, to talk about Sydney 2000 and the Magic Monday night. But I thought, you know what, let's start from the beginning and what lessons did I learn en route to that? Uh, my first point, therefore, and the key moment, it was in 1991. I was uh, a junior athlete, under 20, and I went to our European Junior Athletic Championships. And as you mentioned in your intro, I was really fast when I was young. Um, and I was one of the, the fastest girls in the world. And I had a lot of pressure and expectation. And I was in this 200-meter final. And I, was, I could have won it, and I may have won it, and I should have really been up there. But I wasn't. 
wasn't with a 50 meters to go in this 200 meter race, Laura. And I, and I gave up and I literally dropped from a silver medal position to a bronze medal position. And I've never done that in my career since. And I, I was really disappointed with myself. And my mum was there and she vocalized her disappointment on a TV documentary that was being filmed at me about me at the time. So I got to relive the shame of giving up many times afterwards. But no, it was, it was a real key moment for me of like, what am I doing? I, I, just because I wasn't going to win this race, why the hell did I give up? And, and I never have since. The, woman, the girl that beat me went on to become a, a world champion in 1997. Um, she did get banned in the Balco scandal for two years. But that's a different story, Laura. We'll put that aside. The main key moment was never do that again. And, I was, and, and, and it taught me a lesson. It was, it was an embarrassment. And I let myself down and my family down and my team down. And, but it was different defining because it was like never do that again I've got children now and I really do instill into them whatever you're going to do just do it as long as you give it 100% so yeah it was a big moment that was for me because it was it was a life changer really that's it you're taught as a kid race to the line race to the line for me it was swimming race to the wall do not give up race as hard as you can until you cross that line until you hit that wall whatever it is do you remember what what went through your mind when you had that moment of giving up do you remember thinking oh I'm giving up here. I'm not going to win. Do you remember kind of a, anything explicit you said? Yeah, I, literally. I, I said to myself, I can't be asked. Um, excuse the language. But it was, it was literally one of those brain moments, Laura, where I'm like, I'm running, I'm thinking, I'm not going to beat this girl. And she'd already won the 100 metres. So she, she was the main challenge. Do you know what I mean? She won the 100 and 200 at those European Junior Championships. She, she was good. And I'm like, I'm not going to win this. Oh, for God's sake. If I'm not winning, I'm not interested. It literally was one of them. And then I saw somebody coming up on me. I was like, oh my God, I've, I've demoted myself from silver to bronze here. Really quite an awkward moment. But no, I do. It was literally that, in, we all have them, don't we? That instantaneous moment where you get to make a decision on a situation. And I went down the wrong road. And yeah, it was definitely a, a key moment that I tell my children about now, actually. And I say, listen, this, this happened to me one time. And I don't, you know, you, you just, just do your best. Just do your best. You can't win all the time, but you can try. And obviously now it's all you didn't when you gave up in your race. Don't worry about that, son. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what did your mum say as well? Because obviously that you were filming this TV documentary about you. All the pressure was on and you go, you go ahead and, and give up. <laughs> on camera what it wasn't nice say? yeah I, can't, I, I don't think she swore I don't think she swore well maybe they edited that out but I think it was along the lines of what the hell was that and that was a killer do you know what I mean Lord? That, that I, it was you know my parents were, were extremely supportive and contrary to public belief over the years they never put any pressure on me to perform they never put any pressure on me to do athletics I did it because I loved it and I believed I could be good but then to have that go out and it was like oh wow that makes my mom look you know look like a, a bit of an idiot to be honest it makes her look like a pushy parent and they weren't but it resonated with me of like what the hell was that yeah, it wasn't what it should have been. And, and, and I let, yeah, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. As you can see, many years later, it is still a story that, that resonates with me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And how did you take that moment into the later years of your athletics career? Because you were 16 then, you obviously continued running for, you know, a decade more, uh, or more than that even. How, what lessons did you bring into those later years in your career as well? Did you ever think back to that moment again? 
Yeah, hundred percent, a hundred percent. It was it was literally a, a key moment. Of, even when you cross the line, then you go and stand on a podium, and you're lower on the podium than you should be, or you, you know, because and it's your own fault. That's the thing. When you when you do something and it's your own fault, and you can't look around for people to blame, <laughs> it's like that was a hundred percent me. But no, I, I I I carried it forward every single training session after that. Um, you know, my coach would say, you know, we've got six three hundreds today. And in my mind, it's like, well, that's six three hundred and five meters, or I'm running a four. 400, 410, you know, you run through the line. Everything was then geared towards not repeating that, that moment in time when that you just, that you just shouldn't do. Um, so no, it was, it was a, a, a real moment. And what was kind of then sweet and made it a little bit nicer, but not much was two years later, we had the European Junior Championships again, 1993. I was 18. It was my last year as a junior. I did six years on the British junior team because I started internationally at 13 and I never won an individual gold medal until the 200 meters in 1993 at the same championships. And when I crossed the line in San Sebastian at 18 and won that European junior title, it was a yes. And it was a 1991 look back. And it was like, maybe I could have done that two years previous. So, but I relieved a little bit of the pressure and beating myself up because I eventually did win the title, but the lesson was still learned. Yeah. You kind of put that 91 demon to bed, winning that, that medal and, and took the good positive lessons to learn from it. What I find extraordinary, Kath, is that you have gone from a 16-year-old mistake you made in a race to retirement. And all that's in between, yeah. <laughs> we aren't going to discuss. <laughs> you to sort of think outside the box. And um, you have, but no, you're right. Because I think with this podcast, I didn't want, you know, my guests to come on and, and feel they needed to sort of regurgitate the same things that they've been saying in the media for, for years, talking about how they felt when they won Olympic bronze or how they felt when they won that world championship. It kind of, it's about everything around that that actually led to that sort of 1% that, that we see from the outside looking in. So let's just skip forward a decade or so to retirement, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's take like 14 years out of the campaign. <laughs> but you know why that was, Laura? Because, and it's not because I don't, I, I don't want to talk about it. Of course, I, it's a pleasure, you know. You know, it's 20-odd years now since I won that Olympic medal in 2000. And it's, but it's very easy for me to box that. Sydney 2000, September the 25th, Magic Monday. I ran my fastest time ever and won an individual medal in one of the biggest Olympic races ever. It was life-changing. 49.72 seconds changed my life forever. And it's easy to say, and, that's, and, and genuinely it did. If I didn't win an individual sprint medal in Sydney, I wouldn't do potentially everything that I've done ever since. So you can box that. And of course, that's a key moment because that's obvious. So I've kind of gone, right, that's obvious. Let's skip forward to 2005 when it all fell apart. You know I, mean? I love it. Let's get the air, the, the oh, bad moments in. This is what this podcast is all about. <laughs> you know, so I've started with two bad moments, giving up and letting myself down, and now I'm going to retirement. So I retired. My second key moment, again, life-changing, was 2005. I won the medal in Sydney. The following year, in 2001, I was the fastest woman in the world over 400 metres, and I fell apart and got injured just before the World Championships that year. I moved to America. I just bought a house after Sydney. I moved to America because of injury problems. There was doctors over there that could perform and do stuff in terms of getting my knee and my Achilles injuries better that they couldn't do in the UK. They're a bit more advanced over there. So I moved there. Four years after 2001 and being very, very fast, I decided to retire, but not through choice, which is horrible, as we know. As a sports person, you want it on your own terms. It wasn't. But I literally went to the track in 2005 while living in the United States and said to my coach at the time, I put my bag down. I was rehabbing from another knee operation. I said, I don't, I'm done. I 
don't want to do this anymore. I hadn't planned to retire. Obviously, I'd gone up to go and train. And he went, do you mean now or forever? And I went, I'm done. So I'm going to, every time, every time I don't, I'm going to get upset. And I never went back. And that was it. 15 years later, I look back on that moment and think it was a key moment because as most athletes do in their sport, when it's your job and it pays your bills and it's all that you know, you're scared and you're frightened of what the hell am I going to do next? What is going to define me because sport is what has been my life? And I was scared and I was frightened as soon as I made the decision. But the weight, Laura, that lifted off my shoulders when I sat down that night and I was like, it's done. I'm over. It, uh, there's nothing else for me to do. What the hell am I going to do? And that was scary. And it was frightening. I started doing a bit of broadcasting in the crossover because of Sydney went so well. But it's a horrible feeling. Uh, but then that key moment of, you know what? I'm not stupid. I'm all right. I can do something. I need to back myself. I need to believe in myself. And I did. But again, defining moment was, yeah, I've retired now. I need to become something else. And what that something else is, is quite scary for a lot of people, isn't it? When you make big changes like that. And I think with a lot of athletes, retirement is relatively planned, or at least you hope it will be. You hope that you'll do, okay, I'm going to go till Beijing 2008. And then I'm going to retire after that. And hopefully I'll win a gold medal there and go out on a high. And that's the dream. That's the utopia. But it it rarely happens like that. Life, life isn't a fairy tale. And for you, that waking up that morning and going down to training, did you have any notion in your mind that you would turn around to your coach and say, I can't do this anymore? No, no not at all. And that's why it kind of, you have to go with your gut feelings on things sometimes, don't you? It's that kind of crossroads that, again, people talk about and you have a split second to make a decision. I didn't have the time pressures of making a decision, but it just came to me and it just comes over you as a wave. And it's like, for God's sake... I'd spent three, four years of, you know, prancing around on the sidelines doing rehab and drills and exercises and where the teammates were training properly and doing proper sessions and flying around the world racing. And I just think that builds up to a point, Laura, where it's like some of the, the, the straw that's going to break the camel's back. I don't even know what it was. I didn't plan to retire. I just literally went, boom, I'm done. I'm done. I've had enough. I, can't, I, I literally can't take this anymore. And that took me by surprise as much as everybody else around me. And, and it you was had, a surprise. You, you hadn't told friends, family. I think, did you have a boyfriend at the time? Yeah. No, nobody. Because I hadn't planned to do it. You know, to put it into some kind of context, like I say, I, I bought a house after Sydney in 2000 and then I moved to America when I started to fall apart at the back end of 2001. So I'd only been in my house, which I bought for about a year. I left my house, my friends, my family, moved to the USA where I didn't know anybody, joined a training group, spent thousands of dollars on a Nyon A1 or O1 visa got my apartment, bought myself a car. I was ready to rock and roll in Scottsdale, you know, which is beautiful, in Arizona for the foreseeable future. And then I decided to retire literally. It's like, that doesn't make sense, right? That's not the way to do it. You don't waste money and move yourself across the world to then go, you know what, I've had enough. That's how un- unplanned it was. It, that wasn't the way it was supposed to go. But sometimes life takes over and it goes, boom, I'm done. I've had enough. And, 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 and however scared or frightened I was of whatever was going to come, the overriding been worn down for so long just it just it just took charge it just took charge and I think all that you lost in that moment the money the new car the you know the huge trip across to America probably tells us how sure you were in that moment that gut feeling was was so right do you do you know why you still get so emotional when you do talk about it now what does it bring what emotions does it bring up for you a hundred percent see a hundred percent know why um you get, you get a sense of with anything that's not your choice, 
It's just unfinished business. It's unfinished business that you know what you could have done. You know how you could have performed. You know what you could have achieved. And when that's then taken away from you through no fault of your own, I say to young athletes now or people, it doesn't matter on the environment, does it, Laura? It can be a workplace environment, an educational environment, or a sporting environment. If you leave no stone unturned, you're going to get them whatever you get. But you can lie down at night and sit down at the end of the day and say, I did everything I could. And of course, I did that and still didn't get the result that I wanted because my body didn't let me. It is a horrible feeling of, of unfinished business and frustration. And then in sport, as you know, especially, I'm now seeing people not running as fast as I was running 10, 15 years ago. And they're making a career and a life out of it. And you're like, hang on, how can you be doing you're not even breaking 50 seconds for the 400 meters. So you get then that you get jealous, you get envious and you get really frustrated. And I love my sport and I love everything about it. And I'm very defensive of it because athletics to me is just amazing. And then to have that taken away, it, it just makes me really, really, really sad. But then you balance it with you're appreciative for the opportunities that you did have. And I'm very appreciative for the 49 seconds in Sydney in 2000. So you kind of like, it's, it's that, there's all those emotions, isn't it, Laura, that make it kind of like, mm, if only, but I'm still grateful for what I did do, that kind of thing. Yeah, but I think, I think if only, and that frustration and that, that envy as well. Envy, I find a really overwhelming, powerful and very uncomfortable emotion to have. It's, it's quite a shameful emotion because you think, I shouldn't be feeling envy or jealousy. It's, it's, it seems petty and like a, you're in the school playground. But actually, you know, something was taken from you um, entirely, you know, without your doing and you did everything you could. And it's an injustice, isn't it? And a grief, I suppose, as well. For, oh, what could have 100%. Been. 100%. You do, you mourn it. You can speak to so many athletes that, that, that mourn the loss of that identity of being that person, of being that high-achieving athlete. I remember when just after I retired, not long after, and he won't mind me saying this, one of the best sprinters we've ever had was Jason Gardner, who was a multiple world indoor champion, a sub-10-second runner. And he was on the verge of retiring, and he pulled me to the side at one, one meeting. We were doing something. And he said, Kath, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because... I don't know how I'm going to deal with retiring. And I said, well, what do you mean? What aspect? And he said, the, the replacement side, what am I going to do to replace the high of going to Olympic Games, of, of winning? Because they run the Olympic Games in 2004, a gold medal in the relay. How do I replace that high? Because I'm scared I'm not going to be able to. And I said to him, don't try. Don't even bother trying to replace it with anything because you won't. Accept that that's that and then take the good from everything else you do. But don't even bother trying. And other people won't agree with that. But that's how I dealt with it. Take it for what it is. Don't try and replace it because you can't. And you can't, it's just it's an impossibility. No, and that's why Olympians and, and Olympic champions and Olympic medalists are kind of that 1% that it's just that unattainable dream that only a few, a few get to achieve. And I think it speaks to the power of sport and the importance of your sport and athletics in your life that still to this day, you have tears in your eyes talking about the moment you retired. It shows just how significant sport is and, and how much it has shaped who you are as a human. 100%. 100%. Ath athletics and sport has, has totally shaped everything that I do because it started at such an informative age of, of nine, nine and ten years old. And I had that unique career of, of being so good when I was young and doing all these times and records and internationally. And, and it, it, it is who I am. And, and it still is. It, and it still is. Do you know what I mean? Which is why, like I say, I, I love my sport and I still work in it. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that. But boy, 
I, I don't, I, I, I miss that. I, I, I miss those good, you know what I mean? Those good training sessions where you can go, yeah, yeah. I miss the feeling of, of floating and running and feeling good. And, and now, you know, going up the stairs and, and blowing out my backside and, and not, you know, pulling my calf when I try and run. It's just not fair. No, it's not fair. <laughs> Oh God, it's no, it's not, is it? But we can't stay young and athletic forever, unfortunately. <laughs> we'll move on then to, to the next moment, which does actually speak to what, what you've just said in that you can't be an athlete forever. And at some point you have to share your life and then share mm. who you are and, and compromise. And this is the birth of your son. Yes. So moving on to 2011, my, I've got two children. My oldest, Lucas, was born in the February of 2011. And again, of course, that's the key moment. It's one of the kind of obvious ones that you'd put on a list. Well, it should be if it's not have a word with yourself. And I'll tell you why it was a key moment in, in many ways. Of course, when I've been an athlete, I'm inherently selfish. I'm inherently impatient. Everything's about me um, because that's how you become the person and the athlete that you are. And then this little person comes along and it's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with you? Do you know what I mean? I mean, myself and my, my husband brought our son home. We put him in the lounge in his little travel cot thing and he was just rocking in his and me and my husband looked at each other and went geez what the hell are we supposed to do with this and all of a sudden you're like <laughs> you start wearing a different hat and then you be don't become Catherine you become mommy and the reason why this is a key moment outside of obviously being my first child is because I'd retired and I was working my way into broadcasting I was battling in terms of working at the same time and then all of a sudden I had to concentrate on myself which obviously was very important in establishing myself but then also started having the responsibility of, of, of looking after a child and every parent should say this and, and I'm sure they do you become patient it's a life leveling experience when you are responsible I mean, properly responsible for something else or somebody else. It was a really important key lesson to me that it's not all about me. I need to be less selfish. And I don't think I am selfish, but you know what I'm saying, in my life, in my time. And it taught me instantaneously to be, to be more patient. And yeah, but the priority wasn't me. That, and some people find that hard. I've got girlfriends who have had children. They say to me, Kath, I'm not really quite sure I'm going to deal with this because I don't know whether I can, because you know, it's all about me. And again, not in a big-headed way, Laura, but do you know what I mean? And it, it, was, it was. So the birth of my son did obviously was a huge moment in 2011, as was having my daughter in 2014. But yeah, life-leveling, rather life-changing, yes, but also life-leveling in, term, in terms of what's important, what's really important. Yeah, and it's, that's, it's that's not so much me. Yeah, it's interesting you said all that. I'm, I'm 31 um, and I'm not with anyone and certainly not uh, in any way... <laughs> ready to have a child. The closest I have to being responsible for something is a very naughty um, Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, I'm not even wholly responsible for him. He lives at mum's most of the time. So <laughs> that's how irresponsible I am. But it's true that I speak to, some, some of my friends are having children, some aren't, and some are in the same position as I am. And we do speak to, speak to each other and say, I don't know how I'm going to ever give up this life that I have, this joy of being able to go, I'm going to go out for a coffee and leave the house within 30 seconds rather than, wow. <laughs> as the Michael McIntyre sketch, if anyone's seen it, said it sort of takes about 20 minutes. I mean, is, oh, that, is, that, yeah. is that a short at least. time? <laughs> oh, at least. And that's, and that's if your kids are playing ball. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean, Laura? Because you've got them dressed to the nines and you're ready and you've got the whole house that you have to take with kids, especially when they're smaller. And then obviously you'll, they'll, they'll go and mess up their nap and they mess up their napping. All of a sudden you're behind. And then so my friend said to me the other day, she's just about to have her second child. She said, Kath, is, is, um, is having two children twice as bad? I said, no, listen, it's not, it's not twice as bad when you have a second child. It's a hundred times worse. <laughs> It is. And that's not meant in a bad way. Of course it's not. My kids are my world. But no, it's, um, but you do do it. Laura, you, 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 you do do it. But and I have to reiterate, you're 30, you've got loads of time. I was 36 when I had my son and I was 39 when I had my daughter. I was nearly put onto some geriatric plan for my daughter I'm, because I was nearly 40. I I'm was like, you're taking the you Because I've, I've read that when you get, you know, beyond kind of the age of, I get, it's at 35, they call you geriatric and you have a geriatric geriatric womb just think oh Man, god I'm not honestly sure I'm for this. no never no <laughs> you're not it, no it, 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 it's, it's a shock honestly because they were telling me at 39 I'm, I'm like you know literally a heartbeat away from all these other tests and stuff which is great because you have to look after obviously uh, women and pregnant women of advanced age apparently but you've got loads of time but no and again that was a life like life decision to have my children late I wasn't even ready to look at having children until I was 35 36 and I think that's important an important point to make it's just the way the world has gone hasn't it women are taking responsibility quite rightly and, and want their career and want to be established and you do fit it in you just do you just make it work my coach Linford Christie said to me when I was when I was pregnant with Lucas back in 2010 and I said oh my god how am I going to make this work and he goes, one, you will because you're, you're, you're organized and, and, you know, and, and, and you know what you're doing. I said, yeah, but how do you know when it's the right time? And I'll never forget it, Laura, because he said to me, there's never a right time. Physically, emotionally, financially, you go with it when you feel it's right and you roll with it. And, and I was very lucky because I planned my two pregnancies around my sporting work. So indoor athletics finishes about January, February, maybe March. And then the outdoor season of sports starts. So I timed to have my son in February and my daughter in March. And I was very, very lucky and blessed that it worked out well. I <laughs> so love I that. Miss, I, I was back working after six weeks. It was great. <laughs> even, in, even in retirement, you've still got the athlete mentality of timing everything to the absolute perfection and fitting things yes. in exactly when you need them to be and that level of control that we know that athletes have to have as yes. well but no that's just and it's wonderful to hear that actually for you yes having a child was terrifying and suddenly you had to share your life and who you were and, and it changed your identity I suppose as well like you said from from Catherine Kath Mary the runner to mum um yeah. but actually that that was like you said they're now your world and it was this wonderful life leveler of thinking oh it's not all about me anymore and actually that's quite nice yeah, yeah, it is. I think we'd all like to, you know, grow old and, and, and look back and think, well, actually, I've done a half decent job of sharing my life, which obviously is important to me with other people and having an impact on them. Um, and I, and, but some people don't have that. Some people aren't interested in, in you know, marriage and kids and all that. And then that's cool. It's, it's, everyone's so different, aren't they? Everyone does things in a different way. And the key is just to do you and just to do you in your life and the, and the journey that you have um, and do it in the best and just do it in the best way possible. But yeah, having that, that key moment and 
and life lessons in, in 2011. You are never the same after you've had a child. Your, li- your life changes forever. It does, forever. Whatever happens along the journey is, is, is done and it's changed. And for some people, especially me as an athlete, that takes a little bit of adaptation to get, get my head around that. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's becoming much more socially acceptable and more widely talked about that women are having children at a later age. Some women aren't having mm. children. Some women are choosing a career instead. Some are balancing their career alongside having a family and that's totally okay and totally normal because your career obviously um being a broadcaster and and having contracts and generally being more freelance and not having that level of security that comes with a full-time position works well with having a family but equally means it's probably a little bit more scary as well hundred percent a hundred percent when you're when you work as 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 we do and there, there is no guaranteed paycheck at the end of every month it, it is a very, very scary situation. And, and somebody asked me the other day, what's the best thing about your job? And that I can reel off loads of things. Gosh, you know, I get to work on and witness some of the best sporting moments that the world has ever seen. And I travel and I love my sport and I love my job. And they said, well, what's the worst? And I said, well, there's a few reasons for that. Well, it's not very good. It's, it's insecure. There's no financial stability. Um, I'm away from my children. And, and, and so there's lots of negatives. But yeah, the, the being freelance gives you, as you say, Laura, the the, the flexibility, but then with the flexibility comes insecurity. And that's the one aspect, probably the main aspect of what I do that, that I don't like. And as, um, as, as 2020 showed, that's when it's really exposed when you get something like this happen. Yeah, gosh. Yeah, completely. This year for freelancers has just been um, a tricky one, shall we say, to yes. say the least. We'll move on. We're, we're talking about your career now. And obviously you became a broadcaster post your athletics career. I'm lucky enough to have worked alongside you. I think you you are a phenomenal commentator. I adore listening to you. And I'm very glad that broadcasters felt the same way because your fourth moment is a kind of breakthrough job, isn't it? Yeah, and it kind of follows on in, in, in the timeline we, we, we spoke about, Laura. It was my fourth lessons learned and key moment is was in 2011, again. Um, so from the personal journey of, of having my first child in 2011, literally three, four months later, was offered the opportunity to be a lead female commentator on television, which when I point out to people that there's never been a lead female commentator in track and field, they look at me like, really? And I said, yeah, not colour, not, not a pundit, not someone that sits there and does the replays and gives the insight. I mean, a proper lead commentator of men's 100 metres, lane one. Do you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, flipping it, really? And in 2011, Channel 4 were given the World Athletic Championships in Daegu. Um, so it had come from the BBC. It went to Channel 4. Channel 4 wanted to be so different that they made lots of changes and they took a punt and said to me, we like what you do, Kath. Do you want to be a lead, lead commentator? Wow. Okay. This is a, a breaking the ceiling type of moment because it's never happened before. And I applaud Channel 4, obviously, for doing that and, and leading the way. But it was a definite key moment because it was like, wow, this is something that's never been done before. Secondly, I'm delighted to be given the opportunity to do it. Thirdly, I believe I can do it and I'll do a good job at it. But it also came off the back of my son being five or six months old. So straight in was that whole life balance and again the responsibility of doing a job and you know and being seen to be a female doing this job and I'm a new mom do I want to be away from my son but I need to work and my job's important these two things are very important to me um but no it was a a real balancing moment in my life if that makes sense Laura I think it was that moment that made me think wow I want to do this as broadcasting and this is me because it's important but I also need to be a mom 
And that was the first year it was like, here we go. I got my juggling balls out. And the balancing and, act begin. Balancing act out. But it was, but it was, a, it was a key moment. And it was one that obviously worked out, you know, really, really well. But it was the lessons learned from that was like, this is reality now for the rest of potentially your life until at least your kids are 18, that you're going to be juggling and you're going to be going away. But also bearing that responsibility of flying the flag and, and doing a role that nobody had, had, had ever done before. And I remember Gabby Logan once saying, I think she put it on social media at some point saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that's really, really important for female broadcasters in, in, in any role that we push on. We are good enough. We need to be given the opportunities. And when we are given them, we have to make sure we do a good job. So there's a lot of responsibility learned in, in that, in my fourth point of, of 2011, because I was fully aware of the responsibility that came with it. I think it was Karen Brady who said, a woman has to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. Do you agree with that? Did you feel a pressure that you were kind of not just commentating for yourself and, and for Channel 4, but also commentating on behalf of all the women who've been before and all the women that are to come within sports broadcasting, that you will be judged not on what you're saying and the facts you're getting right, but on, on that because you are a woman? Yeah, there, was this, there still is. You know, we're talking years later now. What, you know, this is my fourth point from 2011. So we're many years later. And there still is that, that I still do feel that responsibility. Do I feel I have to work twice as hard? That's an, that's an interesting one because athletics is a very unique sport. It's because it is literally 50-50 in terms of gender for us. You know, we can look back in time of athletics and say, for, there's, a, there's a Jess Ennis Hill and there's a Mo Farah. And now we've got like, say, a Shelley Ann Fraser-Price and a Usain Bolt. We're very balanced in track and field. So to have, therefore, a female voice and a female commentator isn't, for some people, frowned upon and poo-pooed as much as other sports because it's kind of the norm. I genuinely have never received any negative feedback or ever read or heard anything where they've said, oh, bloody hell, why have you got a woman? Why is there a woman leading it? Because athletics is a little bit different, but... I do feel that the, the old guard and the norm of the way things have gone over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years is still one that is continually, even now, many years later after this 2011 point, is still having to be pushed against because many broadcasters still don't employ certain people in certain roles. And now when they do do it, it's sometimes seen as a box ticking exercise rather than the fact of actually they're pretty good. Do you know what I mean? You know, I like to be known as a, as a broadcaster or a commentator who happens to be a woman. Do you know what I mean? I, rather than the other way around. So no, I did feel the responsibility and I still do because there's still a lot to be done. There's still no permanent roles in certain places and in certain positions when there should be. But as I say, Laura, athletics is a little bit different because we are a dead 50-50 split. But then saying that, I worked in Doha at the World Championships in 2019. I'm due to work at the Olympics in whenever it is, 2020 plus one, as a stadium, infield stadium commentator. I was the first woman to ever do that in 2019 in Doha. And you're like, wow, really? Yep, they've never had a lead female voice in a stadium for a major games, Olympic or World Championships. So there's still a lot to do, but I do feel the responsibility still, and I did back in 2011. I understand what you're saying about athletics, because for me growing up in swimming, I never considered my gender as a barrier to me doing sport or talking about sport, because like athletics, it's 50-50. They're, they're alongside each other. Men, women, men, it's just completely, boys and girls, men and women are in that sport 
entirely and wholly together. And when I think you realise that there is this huge gap between men's and women's sport in the world, it was quite shocking to me. And I, I was so naive. And I probably got to the age of 18, 19, and suddenly looked to the wider world and thought, well, hang on, but I'm doing sport as a woman. And so why aren't I seeing that on television? And why aren't yeah. I seeing that in the newspapers? And yeah. why aren't I seeing women talking about sport the way that I do on, on TV? And it was that kind of groundbreaking, it would be one of my moments probably when I first became aware of feminism, yeah. I suppose. It is, and, and you know what? And a lot of people don't see it. A lot of people don't realise it until you actually point it out to them. So it's like, you know, certain programmes or certain events, like you say, you'll say, you know there's never been a female in this, and they'll go, Pinnick. No, there hasn't. Yeah, no, I, I can name. There's no going back, is there? Once you know, you see it everywhere 100% and there's no going back and then it becomes difficult to watch things because you think oh it's it's three men again doing that okay there you go exactly exactly but it, it starts at the top for me it always has done laura you have to have people who make the decisions that actually then give deserving people the opportunity and that's why my point four was in 2011 channel four said boom we're putting a lead female commentator in and we want it to be you and it's like that was kind of come some little reassurance. Do you know what I mean, Laura? It's like, well, I'm working hard. I'm, I'm, doing my, I'm doing my job and I'm doing it to a good level. No better, no worse than that. Well, I like to think better than some people, but definitely no worse than people that would get jobs ahead of me. But now I got an opportunity. So that was a big key moment. Yeah, chapeau Channel 4 for that one. Um, well, we talked about your career as an athlete. We've talked about you becoming a mum. We've talked about you as a broadcaster. 2020 has been a very difficult year because suddenly the job that you and I do and, and how much we adore our job, and actually for me, it very much formed part of my identity. And that's what I quickly realized once it was taken away was that, hang on a minute, who I am as a person is tied so intrinsically in with my career and, and, and what I'm doing that I don't know who Laura Winter is without mm. a job, which is which was difficult to, t- to come to terms with this year. Your lockdown was more difficult still <laughs> because <laughs> you, had, um, you had the added pressure of becoming Mrs. Mary, the teacher. Wow. I've gone kind of lighthearted for my fifth point. When you said, give me five points, Cass, so I've gone in this timeline and I'm now ending with something a little bit more lighthearted, but still with lessons learned that I've internalised and taken on board. So yes, um, as... Coronavirus, as we know, has devastated so many people in so many areas. And for me, it's a complete game changer in terms of the world as we know it. I think we can all accept that it's something that's uh, changed things forever, in my opinion, with the way we have to, to live and deal with things. And yes, so come March, when there was rumours across the playground that the schools might close, every, every parent, including myself, absolutely went into a state of panic. And like, sorry, what do you mean we can't bring them for you to educate them? We have to do that ourselves. And I walked home on the day the school closed thinking this is going to be the longest summer of my life. And it it did actually turn out to be that because I had to homeschool my two children who were in year four and year one at the time, four months off school. And I went into my sports person's role of organized routine. I bought them desks each. Gave him a chair because I'm kind like that. Gave him a proper sharp pencil. Set up this whole routine in our house here. They were up at a certain time. They were dressed at a certain time. I was teaching them on and off different curriculums, not having a flipping clue what I was doing, right? My son was easier to teach than my daughter. They're different personalities, Laura. Do you know what I mean? My son has a thirst to learn. My daughter, not so much. 
And I realized that I did this for six or seven weeks, like so many parents and carers did during that time. And I realized that I need to trust my kids more and give them more responsibility. And what I mean by that is that I needed a better balance. I I went in gung-ho. I have to teach them. And I went in this mad routine. And I was absolutely knackered after about five or six weeks. And my daughter wasn't learning very much. And I had to adapt like everybody did. And it was a real key moment for me because I thought I need to get this balance better. My children will learn and they will be fine. And don't put so much pressure on yourself to deliver and all the parents on the WhatsApp groups are sharing all these works and you've got so much work in front of you. It's like, what the hell am I supposed to do? I don't know. And I went back to basics, Laura. I went back to basics in terms of their learning and they're obviously now back at school and they're where they need to be and they're fine. And I, want my, I thought, I want my kids to look back. The key moment was when I was like, oh man, it's like when I retired, I'm done. I've had enough. I'm not going back in that room. The desks and get dust on them. My son put an A4 board, you know, you know um, Mrs. Mary class class 33 or whatever it's you know that, that became our our kind of school area and I got told on a daily basis that you're not a teacher you don't know what you're talking about you can't tell me what to do well I can tell you what to do because I'm your mom but I admit I'm not a teacher and I don't know how to do things it's a savage but aren't they <laughs> it was a, it was a game changer it was a game changer but it taught me Laura that I needed to just back off a bit more not put so much pressure on myself not put so much pressure on my kids and that they will be fine and they are fine. But yeah, it was a, it was a panic, man. It was, it was a panic because I'm like, I've got enough hats as it is. I really can't take on board a teacher hat. And, and my respect for teachers just went through the roof. I think a lot of parents will tell you that. I don't know how they do it. But yeah, it was, a, it was lessons learned and a key, a definitely a key moment that taught me to just relax a little bit more and not be so... I think that the pandemic life. has taught us all that, that we do have to just sometimes go... Do you know that's enough that I have done I've done this today whatever that is whatever you know however coronavirus has affected you I've done I've done this today and that has to be enough because do you know what we're living through a global pandemic that none of us have ever seen before that has decimated livelihoods and destroyed lives and and people have lost their lives to this and we have to actually just step back and go that's enough today but I know for for people like like you as a former athlete and for people like me and you who are both freelancers, that's incredibly difficult to do because it's always, right, what's next? Okay, so I've done that in that way. So I'm going to do it better next time by doing this. And I'm going to keep pushing and, and keep hustling here and there. And suddenly to be told, go home, do nothing. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah, you're just changing your rhythm. You're changing your vibe. You know, life, life work for me, life is, back to the athletics, life for me is routine. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It, 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 you know, you digress from it sometimes, you go away, you throw, <laughs> throw the plans out the window. Woohoo, look at us, living the dream. <laughs> but then most of it's routine. And that's what we thrive on as people. And to have that taken away and to have normality taken away is, 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 takes, takes some getting used to. But boy, but, but, we, all, but we do adapt, don't we? We, we do adapt and, and, and I've adapted and my kids have adapted um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like we've said, we've said a couple of times, haven't we, Laura, it's, everything's a game changer and you just have to, you just have to roll with it in the best way that you can. But that was definitely a lesson that I, I learned, um, through that initially in that period was just relax, Kath, just take your time. Stop beating yourself up because your son hasn't done his spellings. Just be creative, do more 
And I don't, I'm not a, like a pushy parent in terms of stuff like that, Laura, but I just like routine. And I was just panicking because my kids have to learn. There's four months of their education, or half, virtually half a school year they haven't had. And I'm responsible for that because my husband works full time. So I was, de- I was dealing with all of it. But I thought, you know what? I want my kids to look back in 10 or 15 years and say, Mommy, do you remember 2020 when you were at home in the summer because you're normally away working and you were there all the time and we had such fun. And I want them to think back to that rather than, blimey, you remember when I got those spellings wrong in the middle of March, Mommy? And you, know what I mean? you just got to relax and go with it, right? Yeah, completely. There's, a, there's another saying that I go by, which is, if it won't matter in five years, don't waste five minutes worrying about it. And it is those tiny details of life, like, like the spellings that you didn't manage to get done today or or you know I don't know whatever it may be and certainly in this yeah. pandemic we had to learn not to be so hard on ourselves and just to go oh it's enough today um yeah 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 in five years yes we'll all remember coronavirus and it's something I think none of us will ever forget is this period of time and I just hope that those listening and that for you Kath as well that we've managed to eke out positive wonderful moments from the doom and, and the gloom as well yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so, Laurel. I think that's, that's what I try and concentrate on, that everything, it, it, you know, things will get better. You know, nothing lasts forever. Again, that's a piece of advice I was, I was given when my son wasn't very well when he was born. And one of my good friends said to me, Kath, whatever you're going through, whether it's a little bit of sickness, a little bit of illness or a little bit of sleepless nights, you know, you're walking around like a zombie and, you know, just tanked upon coffee all the time, but it's not going to last forever. Nothing lasts forever. So I think you're right. You've just got to kind of adapt and make the best choices you can in the situation. If you make mistakes, that's the way it goes. You learn from those mistakes. There's good and bad things that you're going to take from, from things like this. And, and then you just learn from the lessons. You know, doing something once is fair enough. Twice, you haven't learned then, have you? So I think we just have to adapt and be as, uh, as flexible as we can. And as long as you're happy and as long as you're healthy, I think that's the main thing that I've, I've, I've realized, you know, quite recently that we're doing okay. Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot worse. Um, so yeah, you just, uh, you take the positives where you can. All about perspective, isn't it? That's a lovely note to end on as well, that we're doing okay. And that is in 2020, do you know what? That's enough. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> how, the, yeah. how the bars come down. We're doing all right. It's fine. Woo! <laughs> oh, exactly. God, what a year, eh? Um, Kath, me and you could natter all day. So thank you so much for being on the pod. It's just been lovely to talk to you and to go through these moments that, like you said, you wanted to think outside the box and we've definitely done that today. No, you're, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure and it's really, really in- enjoyable. And yeah, I have. It's, it's, I've enjoyed it because it's kind of like, it makes you think of things doesn't it Laura when you pose the question of five key moments what lessons have you learned and it was like yeah actually that's a good question and it's nice to to verbalize them and and, and talk them through and reaffirm those lessons that I've learned over x amount of years and kind of just wake them back up again and realize yeah they were important moments but it's been my pleasure and lovely to see you and hopefully I'll see you sooner rather than later in the flesh at an actual live sporting event I know, a live sporting event. I can give you like a little cheeky hug as well. <laughs> I don't know if that's COVID regulations. Maybe not. We'll sneak one in somewhere, fully masked. Yeah, who knows? But no, my pleasure. You're very oh, welcome. Thank you, Kath. Hopefully see you soon. Take care. And you. Oh, Kath never fails to make me laugh. And I love how honest and authentic she is. She's the sort of person you just love to have a drink with down the pub, isn't she? I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed recording this one.
So that's it for episode seven. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, hit subscribe, leave a review and get in touch on social media as well. At Laura C. Winter on Twitter and Instagram and at Lessons Learned Pod on Instagram too. Plus, if you think your friends or family might enjoy this, do share it. I'll be back for the final episode of the series with the man mountain that is Wales and Lions rugby legend, Sam Warburton. We'll be looking back on the highs and lows of his brilliant career, as well as looking at what makes Sam Warburton, Sam Warburton off the pitch as well. I can't wait to share it all with you. See you then.